season two, episode three. Cause you know it don't matter anyway. You can rely on the old man's money. You can rely Really honored to have David on our show tonight. Is multiple systems. So you have a family system, which is, you know, basically a, a system of love. And then you have an enterprise, which is a, a system that functions, uh, you know, in an open free market competitive economy. But in the back of everyone's mind is who's going to take this over when they're ready to go? What expectations are there for me to progress in management, progress in leadership, and to have a conversation that's direct about a path to ownership? You know, there's a good chance in some way, shape, or form you're going to be involved in private business. So are there any key, and I know you've kind of touched on a little bit, but would you say there are any kind of key strategies or frameworks that can be used to help avoid the pitfalls that impede a family business from like continuing we as a generation feel that things are just owed to us and that is like a a, a perception that's out there that i'd love for you to debunk where you know all of a sudden we've gone from a, a, a nice nicely run family owned business to oh my gosh we have this guy that's joining us who is part of the family but he is just in this freaking death spiral that we can't control you know entitlement didn't start with the millennials entitlement actually started with their parents their parents were the first ones to feel entitled not the millennials is that your generation didn't have to work for that trophy you got it because you came in 10th place but hey you you at least participated so you deserve something All right, TNDC Thursday night debate discussion, drinking with a little asterisk next to it, club. Season two, we're still in season two, episode three. And I don't know when I am allowed to drop the season two part of that. I think it just becomes natural that I can talk episode three because we're out of chronological order at this point. So I think our users are uh, are, are uh, savvy enough to get that. But anyway, we've had a really killer start to this season episode one was with bill crystal and henry olson and we talked about uh millennial electorate today what the the polarization of today's political climate having really opposite ends of the spectrum be running in these primaries and winning and then you get into a general election and and it's almost the picking the the best of two bad candidates and so that was a very interesting conversation in season in uh, episode one and then last episode, we talked with General Martin Dempsey, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs under Barack Obama, and that was still under the same theme of Trump one year in, talking about national security, though, and did a, a global tour and kind of went country by country in our relationship with them and so forth. And I really encourage everyone to go back and review those. And uh, it's really actually rallied, rallied our listeners. So that's been uh, very cool to see. So appreciate you all listening. Um, going forward, we have uh, a few more guests lined up. We're going to talk about economy, uh, immigration. I think we want to talk about the Russian probe because that's of peak interest to almost everyone, both sides of the aisle. So we have a lot to a lot to discuss. But today we have a guest uh, who I'm going to I'm going to throw it over to Harold to introduce. 
uh, David Specht. Yeah, so really honored to have uh, David on our uh, on our on our show tonight. He is um, he is the author of the Family Business Whisper. Um, he's also uh, a founder of a strategy consulting firm to family businesses. So this is an individual who has a lot of expertise and domain in family uh, business and helping families' business perpetuate um, uh, wealth and preserve their, their businesses. He has been featured uh, in the New York Times, Bloomberg Business Week, and Family Business Magazine. He's also lectured um, at Cornell, the University of Nebraska, has a master's degree in ta- tax and financial planning from San Diego State University, and uh, quite frankly, we're honored to have him on here today as he's gained a lot of you know, international attention around uh, family business. And as Jake talked about, you know, we want to promote family and private business and explore a couple topics today. So thanks for being on today, David. Yeah, thanks, guys. Happy to be here. So I think there are a couple of things to Harold's point. We, we definitely want to talk about your book and, and what it means to you know, perpetuate uh, family wealth going forward. And as millennials, and you're talking to a crowd of business school students, and not all of us come from, uh, you know, private business necessarily, and not all of us are going into private business. But there's there's a certain uh, takeaway, I think, that we can all learn from your book. And maybe you can kind of give a, a quick synopsis of, of you know what what that looks like for a millennial uh, in perpetuating wealth through multiple generations and um, maybe we can go from there. Sure. So um, I've been working with family-owned businesses for over ten years now, and was frustrated with not being able to impact more of them. It was kind of one family at a time, and so that was the whole purpose behind the book. And um, you know, I think for your audience, it makes sense that they understand the nuances of these family and closely held businesses, because whether they're going back into a family business um, or their suppliers are going to be family owned companies. Um, I just think understanding some of the challenges, some of the opportunities um, that these families have that, that own enterprises is is really going to help them to have the perspective they need to be able to interface with them uh, so, you know, for me, the, the, the whole objective of working with families um, that own businesses is because I saw relationships in jeopardy, not only businesses, but the family relationships during these transitions. Um, you know, typically communication is, is the toughest thing. Um, you know, other than talking about sex, you know, people don't want to talk about money. And sure. with family and closely held businesses, um, you know, they're very private about their wealth. Uh, they're typically not, you know, flaunting their wealth around. And and even with their own kids, they're not always 100% transparent with what they've developed. And so um, this book was, uh, I guess, my effort to get to more family-owned businesses, to give them some tools to even just begin the conversations that they need to have with each other and uh, and with their most important employees. And so, what do those what do those conversations look like? Like, if you're gonna, so it, and 
correct me if I'm wrong, but you've done some uh, consulting work with these firms and that's kind of where you gathered all of your, your information and, and then were able to publish this book, successful book. And, and so what, what types of conversations do you, do you try to promote within these families? And I understand you know, it's a, it's around the money issue and what succession planning looks like potentially, but uh, where, what's the drawback? What's the, what's the risk? What is that challenge? Can you, can you pinpoint that? Yeah. So there are several, um, I would call them crucial conversations. The one is, you know, one that your peers are, are trying to figure out how to have right now, if they are going back into a family company is, you know, how do you have the conversation around wanting to return and how do you have the conversation around compensation? Because, um, what we're dealing with with these family owned companies is multiple systems. So you have a family system, which is, you know, basically a, a system of love. And then you have an enterprise, which is a, a system that functions, uh, you know, in an open free market competitive economy. And so you have these multiple systems coming together and it makes those conversations extremely difficult. And, um, families, many times deal informally with family with family stuff and when it comes to business you know they're usually more formal but when you mix those two and you have a family that owns a company um many times they revert back to the informality of family relationships and they they aren't as formal with communicating expectations um even even as simply as you know what are the expectations for coming back to the family business you know, does there have to be a job posted or are we going to create a job for you? You know, how do you have the conversation around compensation? Um, does dad just decide what he thinks you're worth uh, based on what your family needs are? Or is your job and your compensation based on, um, you know, a competitive wage uh, if you were hired in a non-family firm? So those are just a couple of examples. But then, you know, then we get into management, ownership transitions, and, you know, the conversations around when, you know, when is, you know, when are you going to, as the next generation, going to have more opportunity to make decisions? When are you going to be able to see um, full transparency with regards to the, the finances of the business? And so you can see, um, you know, Jake and Harold, there's, there's just a lot that can emotionally charge these systems. And that's, that's really what we're dealing with. And what do you think that the timing is? So you, you talked about both transition of uh, more decision making rights, and then also talking about compensation when they when they enter the firm for the first time. But what about what about individuals that are going to go work for a, a father, a mother, an uncle, aunt, what have you, for you know ten or fifteen years? They're not ready to retire, but they want you to come work for them. But but in the back of everyone's mind is who's going to take this over when they're ready to go? And, and, mm-hmm. and so is, is the more difficult conversation early on when you're trying to get, you know, your first contract and you're getting in the, or your first employment contract, you're getting in the door for the first time, or is it 10 years later, you've been there for a while, but so as my brother and sister and my cousin and who is the rightful or the, the right successor to the firm how do you go about navigating those situations? Yeah, good question. I, I mean, I think I think every family should have kind of like a dating phase almost when you re-enter the family business. There should be a couple of years where you know you 
you're getting paid to do the job you do. And there's after two years or after three years, whatever the family decides and what are you, what you decide with the senior generation that you're just, you're just going to decide to have another conversation. You're going to put a date on the calendar when you're going to have another conversation where you're going to review how things have gone, how you're progressing, and also have a conversation around what expectations are there for me to progress in management, progress in leadership, and to have a conversation that's direct about a path to ownership. So the, the last thing I want any of your listeners to do is go back to their family-owned company, spend their best 10 or 15 career-building years at their family company, only to find out that there really isn't an opportunity for them to you know, be the controlling owner or for them to find out that, hey, they're going to have to own this business equally with their you know, four other siblings who don't know anything about the business, don't care anything about the business, and are essentially going to be really difficult to work with. And, and so, so if I'm, so if I'm hearing, yeah, so if I'm hearing you correctly, it's let's have a conversation that's very objective. Let's pretend for the next half hour that we're sitting around the table together that we're not actually blood related. And let's really flesh this out as if we're, you know, a, a, any other business that's going through some succession planning. Is that, does that sound about right? Yeah. And in fact, you know, we sometimes go as far as, um, you know, we talk, we talk about wearing multiple hats. Well, are you making that decision with your dad hat on, or are you making that decision with your business owner hat on? And, you know, if I'm doing a, you know, presentation, I'll talk about that with families and they need to be explicit with, you know, what role are they filling when they have that conversation? And that's important for the next generation to know as well. Look, I'm having this conversation with you as your dad, or I'm having this conversation with you as a business owner. And again, that seems weird, but that level of formality uh, is necessary. Otherwise, you know, there's, there's unclear expectations going both ways. And really that just leads to friction in the relationship and, and a lot of wasted energy um, from the next generation worrying about, I wonder, I wonder if, or, you know, am I on the right path? And ultimately, if there's clarity, then, you know, the next generation can really devote themselves, throw, the, throw, throw all of their energy at the work, and that family-owned company will be better off. But I think a lot of people avoid those conversations, and there ends up being a lot of time wasted, a lot of energy wasted, and many times it can cause frictions and fractures in families that, that uh, don't get repaired. Yeah, that's really, really interesting, Dave. And you, you obviously come from a, um, uh, you know, a background where you've experienced a lot of this and seen a lot of this. One of the things that, you know, I, I, I want to say to 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 our listeners, um, and I think it's very important for for Jake and I as well, is the the fact that eighty to ninety percent, and this is to me why this topic is so important. I mean, a lot of us are going to go from business school into consulting or banking or go to some big industry job for a fortune 500 or 100 company. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, my hunch is a lot of us, uh, those that live here in the United States or those that live are front are, are international. Um, you know, there's a good chance in some way, shape or form, you're going to be involved in private business. I mean, 80 to 90% of business in the United States is family, private, like business. 
Um, so yeah. that in itself makes this like very, very important. And I think too, I wanted to kind of touch, touch on this with you, Dave, and kind of get your perspective is there's a common fact out there and you can tell me how true it is or not. Um, is that less than one third of family businesses survive the transition from the first to second generation ownership. So one third, you know, of the family businesses survive that transition. So that means two thirds don't even make it to the second generation. So if you make it to the second generation, another 50% don't survive the transition from the second to third generation. Is that, is that, does that, is that, is that a commonly held fact in the family business kind of industry, Dave? Yeah, those are, those are the statistics. Um, I mean, I think there's the why behind those statistics that oftentimes get somewhat confused. Um, you know, I think the biggest reason that family businesses don't perpetuate themselves at a higher rate is because, um, multiple generations don't share the same passion for the same industry, not because, the business wasn't good, not because the business didn't have opportunity um, and not because, you know, family members were inept. Um, The only way family owned companies perpetuate themselves successfully is when multiple generations share a passion for the same industry. And, um, you know, I think those statistics can be thrown around um, and just make it seem like, Oh, family businesses are, um, they're not uh, sophisticated enough or they're not, you know, there's not enough talent and many times there's not enough talent in the family, but, um, unless there's a shared passion for an industry or for a business, um, why would it perpetuate itself? So, you know, those are true statistics and some of the, some of the reasons behind those statistics are communication issues, um, not creating a a clear path for the next generation. Um, and, and not preparing heirs, you know, to, to think and act like owners. Um, many times, you know, family members, we see family members coming back into business. Um, and some of your, some of your, some of your friends are going to go back to their family owned company right out of, right out of Duke. And, and we'll go back some of them without a clear job description. Yeah, that, that's and scary. We'll go that's back scary. without a clear compensation package right um just because it's a family-owned company and so it's those it's those types of informalities that um that are really dangerous so dave in an effort to clarify these statistics a little bit i want to take a a, just a quick step back and just define family business because it, it, it sounds very trivial but what because there's obviously private industry and then there's public industry. And so I, I, I mean, I, I get that, but family owned mm-hmm. business, is there some level of number of employees that constitutes a family owned business? Is it, you know, I'm the sole owner and therefore this is and it's, and it's feeding, it's putting food on the table for my family. So therefore like what is the threshold to call it a family owned business? Yeah. So the, the broadest definition of a family-owned business is when, when multiple family members either own or manage a company together. So more than, more than one. If there's two and they're in the same family and they own or manage okay. together, that would be considered a family-owned company. Okay. So it's, it's just more than one. Because so, my, my dad owns a company up in southwest Wyoming. 
and we all mm-hmm. like to claim it as our family business. We all wear his logo everywhere because we're very proud of what he does and we're very proud of the company that he's running. But I don't know if we yep. necessarily call it a family business yet unless one of my siblings take it over or something in the near future. Or who knows? You know, whatever that, however that plays out. So I just want to, I want to kind of lay the, well, the groundwork for what that, what that looks like or what kind of companies we're actually talking about. Yeah. Well, did you or your siblings work in that, in that company part-time? Uh, yeah, my two Growing younger up, brothers did actually very part-time. Uh, so, I think Charlie and Tommy both painted our, <laughs> <laughs> that can, he owns a, a series of convenience stores and, and other services, gas field services. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, I think, uh, Charlie and Tommy beautified them painted <laughs> but so yes so so i mean anytime there's again that they'll they or you will consider those family that a family business because you have some sweat there you work okay. there some so totally no, fair. i think totally the definition fair. is very loose very broad now that with that said um you know there's a large number of publicly held companies um that are family controlled and are still considered family-owned businesses walmart's yeah. a family walmart's a family controlled business so we're not just talking about you know mom and pop businesses when we when we say family business and that's that's definitely a a misconception when those words come out of our mouth family businesses they think small or um, inconsequential and that's just not true. Yeah, no, totally fair. Uh, Sam Walton family owns. Uh, yeah, totally fair. So Dave, let, let me ask you. Let, let me ask you this. Um, wh- is there anything, you know, you've talked a little bit about what we as millennials can do to, you know, look into going into our respective family businesses. Um, do you see anything from a policy perspective, uh, anything that the, um, that, that the government from a, I don't know if it's from a tax perspective or just legislation standpoint that can be done to help uh, perpetuate family business or is it from your perspective kind of your focus is mostly kind of looking at what are the things that individuals and families can do of in which they have control to 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 look at uh, you know family business succession and perpetuating family family wealth I'm, I'm just curious is there anything out there that you would say look that this would need to be done to help family business environment yeah so I mean the the uh, estate tax, was uh, and and continues to be a topic around family-owned and family-controlled companies. Um, you know that has moved to eleven point two million dollars per person, um, and so that relieves you know the estate tax burden for a lot of small uh, small family-owned companies. Um, I don't know that it's going to stay there forever. Um, it never has stayed put for very long, I guess. But um, you know what, Harold, I. I would say there's so much that a family needs to focus on that they can control um, that I, I don't focus that much on, you know, the policy side uh, because there's so much that families aren't doing on their own that they actually have control over. Um, it can be, it can be just paralyzing, you know, right. if we're looking at all the what ifs. Now I'm not saying those sure. things aren't important, so, um, are, so are, all, but yeah. So are there any key, and I know you've kind of touched on a little bit, but would you say there are any kind of key strategies or frameworks that can be used to help avoid the pitfalls that impede a family business from like continu- continuing? Yeah. I mean, some of the strategies are just 
first of all, you know, have contingency plans for management and ownership. You know, you'd, you'd be shocked at some of the businesses that don't have written contingency plans for management. You know, if, if one key manager passes away, like, what are the what are the decisions that only he or she knows how to make and who who would be next up like as simple as that thought process is there's some very sophisticated businesses that don't have management contingency plans and then second you know ownership contingency plans you know if if any of the owners die like how do assets flow i i can't tell you how many business owners i've talked to that cannot describe um clearly how assets flow if, if they were to pass away or if their business partner were to pass away. So, you know, starting with the super basic of management and ownership contingency plans. And then from there, if you are going to integrate the next generation, um, you know, you got to have an entry plan for them. Um, in the industry, there's a lot of ter- there's a lot of talk around exit strategies and exit planning um, but in order for someone to exit, someone else has to enter. And, you know, we don't do a great job, um, I think, of, of creating these entry plans. And when I think of the next generation coming back, like, they need to know what they're responsible for. They need to know what they're going to be held accountable for. Um, in family-owned companies, you know, typically they, they they don't get feedback in the same way as more formal um, corporate structures do. And so I think creating more formality where informality used to be okay, I think is, uh, is key. And, and that may start with, you know, a family employment policy statement, which basically is, Hey, if you, if you're a family member and you want to come work in the family business, like what, what are the hurdles? What are the expectations that we have? And some families are saying, you know, we value education. And so in order for you to come back and be a manager, you know, you have to have an MBA. Or others are valuing, you know, work experience. And so some are saying, you know what, in order for you to return to the family company, you need to go have three or five years of, of work experience outside of the family business. And some are even saying you need, to, you need to be promoted somewhere else so that you can know that you don't need the family business and that you can make it on your own, that you don't need dad or mom to write you a check. Um, but that also you're coming back with significant value. Because, um, you know, one of the toughest things for next gens to enter the family business is, you know, they're held to an an unrealistic standard by non-family employees. You know, the standard that they're held to is extremely high. And so that next generation needs to know what they're getting into. They need to be competent. And and they need to, to know that they can make it on their own, even if the family business didn't exist. So, Dave, there's a lot of uh, a lot to unpack there. And I would be remiss to not make mention of my mom's side of the family. Her dad, so my mom's one of six kids. Her dad, Charlie Solberg, is one of my heroes. Gramps, we all call them. We're 27 grandchildren. I'm pointing to his picture to Harold so he can see him on the top of my my bookshelf over there. Uh, Gramps started a company in his garage with his six kids. They did a little assembly line, uh, and it was all about uh, filters, air filters, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, classic story of garage from a multinational company and he passed yeah. in 2010 and my two uncles took over the company after he passed and, and 
long story short, now it, it is that is like the true definition of a family owned company because I have I have mm-hmm. cousins working there and uh, you know they are a, a perfect use case for this. And my question to you, and and you mentioned it a little bit, is what happens in the case that and thank God I'm not I don't fall into this category. My family is all very very uh, my cousins are all very bright i might not be the the brightest of them all but my cousins are all very bright they're all working for the or not all but several are working for this this company Solberg manufacturing and but what if and it I, you said it happens all the time there is an individual that feels so entitled to come work for the company and just have a pay paycheck cut for him on a biweekly basis and he's not really doing a whole lot like I kind of want to use this as our transition into the next topic, which is that millennial entitlement that, that we as a generation feel that things are just owed to us. And that is like a a, a perception that's out there that I'd love for you to debunk. And then I can play devil's advocate and and we can kind of go from there. But like, how do you, how do you mediate that relationship with a, 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 a person, an individual that goes into a family owned company and just expects a check to be cut for them. How do, what does that conversation look like as a consultant or, or, or mediator? Yeah. Well, ultimately, you know, when you get situations like that, it's, it's not healthy for the person that is not performing, you know, that person that is getting a paycheck, um, but underperforming or isn't the right fit for that, that job ultimately not holding them accountable is not only not good for the company, but it's horrible for them. Um, their, their own, um, their own sense of self-worth is going to be in the, in the absolute toilet. I mean, and so families, when they don't address these issues or when they, um, position someone that's a family member in, in a position where they're not qualified for, where they can't have success, um, you know, they've set them up for failure and, um, you know, it's best to have some of those difficult conversations to say, look, we need to find a role for you that where you, where you can be successful, where you can add value, where you can feel good about what you're doing. Um, but part of the problem though, Jake, is that families have a lot of informality with allowing their next generation to join the company. And then once, once they're in, and if there isn't established accountability, uh, it's hard to change course without, uh, you know, without some serious friction. And sometimes that friction needs to happen though. So, I mean, there, there is entitlement. I have a different view of entitlement, um, maybe than a lot of the world. But Millennials it, so if we, you know, uh, are the target. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Cause I, I, I want to get there. Um, but is that like, so if there is a kid that's in this, this company and he just, he or she is just getting these checks cut for them. Like what does that kid look like to you? Is there a, is there, and I don't want to, I don't want to put a label on that individual, but is it, is that when like drugs and alcohol and depression and you know, all these, these byproducts or, or symptoms of being wealthy and coming into a family owned enterprise and not really having to do a whole lot and feeling that lack of self-worth like it, it just feels like a death spiral to me and i i think i've i've seen it with uh with you know other families that i've witnessed it, 
have you been involved in situations like that where, you know, all of a sudden we've gone from a, a, a nice, nicely run family owned business to, oh my gosh, we have this guy that's joining us who is part of the family, but he is just in this freaking death spiral that we can't control. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you see it. There's every family has one, right? Every family has a black sheep. And again, parents, when they, you know, firmly are wearing their parent hat, want to do whatever they can to, you know, take care of their child. And, and sometimes that's how they, they choose to do that is by employing them, even when they should not be employed in the position that they're in. And, um, it's never positive. It's never positive because, um, you know, that individual, I mean, I would know if I, if I was hired by my dad to do a job I wasn't qualified for, or, or frankly, if I didn't show up and I still got paid, um, you know, that doesn't, I mean, I may think I'm getting a sweet deal, but ultimately that doesn't do anything for my self-worth. So, um, yeah, I mean, some of those things just need to be called out. And, and for families, sometimes they're not as clear as to, you know, the non-family employee that's looking on saying, dude, this is a mess. Yeah. And I think at, so, at the end of the yeah, day, it's just, it's, into it. it's caring about what you do and it's having pride in what you do. And, and I think that, you know, it comes down to the self. So, okay. So, but I'd love to get into, you have a different perception on millennial entitlement. This is an issue that's been risen. I don't, I don't know if it's that public necessarily, but it's kind of like the elephant in the room that, that our generation, and this is a millennial focused podcast where we, we try to, you know, discuss these types of issues with people like yourself and other in policymakers mm-hmm. and big, you know, people of influence. And, and, and so the perception that millennials feel this entitlement that, that we're owed something, I feel like is a common perception. I don't want that to be true, but I think it is. And so I, I'd love to get your, your first take on that. Sure. Well, I mean, I would say, you know, for millennials, many are known as, as, as not impatient, as impatient, first of all. And the generation that was before them was one of the most patient generations uh, in terms of, you know, I've worked this job for 20 years and I'm, I'm loyal to, to the company. And, and that's just, that's just different for the millennial generation. Um, you know, millennials need to see a, a path and need to be excited about their work. Um, the whole entitlement thing, though, for me is, you know, entitlement didn't start with the millennials. Entitlement actually started with their parents. Their parents were the first ones to feel entitled, not the millennials. And let me unpack that a little bit. The, the parents felt entitled because they were wealth creators be able to do for their kids what they maybe didn't have when they were kids. So they feel entitled to make their kids' lives easier. They feel entitled to say, you know what, my kids are never going to have the hardships that I had. You know, there's stories of whether it's paying for college or working a crappy job during school or whatever. And there's a lot of parents that say, you know what, my kids aren't going to suffer those things I suffered. But what happens is that the values that that generation developed through passing through hardships or through going things through things that were difficult, the values are not transitioning. And so we may be doing a great job of transitioning wealth, financial wealth, but if we don't transition the values that the, the generation before had, then what do we really have? 
so I really think it's it starts with parents feeling entitled to hey and 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 I'm not pointing fingers like I deal with this now I have six kids you know I'm looking to create a lot of success for our family and I'm going to have to deal with it too of how easy am I going to make things for my kids um because it's a natural inclination as a father or a mother to want their kid you know to want your kids to to have all the opportunities and to to uh, avoid as much pain as possible. And I think in some of that pain avoidance, um, you know, we've, we've crippled some, some millennials along the way. Yeah. And that's really, really interesting. I mean, do you, do you, do you ultimately feel like when you say it's crippled millennials along the way, can you kind of maybe go into that a little bit more? I mean, do you ultimately feel like in the realm of family business, that type of, um, I guess, kind of feeling ultimately kind of leads into, you know, extending all the way throughout crippling a business and hurting a business in terms of unlocking value and being successful and perpetuating wealth and continuing a business to the next generation? Yeah. So let me just give you an example. Um, let's just talk about lifestyle expenses. If, if a family, because of wealth creators, success can always fly private should they should they not to create the, to not create the expectation of the next generation that you're always going to fly private um you know so there's, there's hey dude if i can that, fly that private i'm flying private <laughs> if i if i can if, if i can afford to fly private i'm freaking flying private <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess we have an energy discussion coming up soon. Creating creating unrealistic expectations. I think of my own situation. um, You know, my wife is the second of eight kids. Her dad was a farmer and and a teacher. He couldn't help his kids pay for one dime of college. And so each one of those kids had to figure it out along the way. And what happened was because that was the expectation, they figured it out and they developed some values along the way that um, made it easy on me uh, when I married her because her expectations were so low. But if I were to turn that upside down and say, you know, raise a child with with really high expectations for the house they live in, the cars that they drive, you know, um, the vacations that they take, you know, we're creating expectations for our kids as they're growing up. And if we create expectations so high, um, you know, there's a lot of wealth creators that have kids that are following them that will never create the kind of wealth or create the kind of income that they've created. And so each, each of us as children, we want to look to our parents and we want to measure ourselves against our parents. It's a natural thing to do. And so I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of millennials that are going to probably struggle with that. Um, Parents probably given, maybe given too much, created too much of a lifestyle expectation. And, um, you know, when you can't come right out of school and have the same lifestyle as your parents had after working for 25 years, you know, we're all of a sudden dismayed or, or, or depressed because we can't do those things. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's a real problem we're, we're facing. So, so a lot of, a lot of observations that we're discussing, how, how do you fix it? How do you how do you go through? So so our millennial generation, we've been I don't know. I think I think it's we've just been tagged with this mentality that entitlement, yeah. Well, entitlement, but we also 
we go home with participation trophies and everything that we do, I get a ribbon, I get, uh, so, and, and that's, I think that's the story that we all hear constantly is that your generation didn't have to work for that trophy. You got it because you came in 10th place, but Hey, you, you at least participated. So you deserve something. And so that mentality that I deserve something is, is, is therefore perpetuated on and on. Right. So, so how do you fix that? Do you, do you go to these sports organizations or, you know, or, or I don't know what people do today, spelling bees or (laughs) I don't know, but do you, um, do you say just give an award for first, second and third honor those that actually succeeded in whatever competition it was and teach the lesson that, Hey, you actually weren't the best. And, mm-hmm. and, and let the kid learn from that. Do, do you go back to those types of learning experiences or, or what is the takeaway? What is the suggestion? Yeah. I mean, if we go back to the statistics, I mean, history kind of, kind of fixes it with basically the wealth dissipates and families start over again. And that's what happens. Um, a lot of times when there isn't a great expectation for, um, or if there isn't a great understanding of how to how to create wealth, if that isn't passed, um, you know, then ultimately the family dissipates their wealth, and we we start over. But yeah, I mean, I I do think um, it's tricky. I don't think there's any magic bullet for you know taking them to the spelling bee and and uh, not not providing trophies or whatever. But um, you know, encouraging our kids, encouraging them to do things that are, that are challenging, that are stretches for them. Um, you know, I think is, is huge, but there's, there's no silver bullet. I think it's all about, um, well, actually, let me tell you one more thing the the hardest thing to perpetuate is not the wealth. Um, and it's not to pass on the, the, the wealth. Um, the most valuable asset that most families have that create wealth is their relationships and their connections. And I think that's one way that I think that, um, you know, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about that, but as, as families leverage their relationships, when a next generation finds a passion that they have, whether it's aligned with the family company or not, you know, families, families have connections that can uh, unlock and, um, you know, catapult their, their kids into successful opportunities, even if it isn't in the family company. And I just think we don't, we're not intentional enough about looking at the talents of our next generation and aligning their talents, um, with, with how we invest in them. And I think that's a problem with family business because many times we try to shove, um, you know, our kids into these family businesses that we know that we love. And if their talents aren't there or their interest isn't there, um, it's just a recipe for not, for not not finding success. And and you you brought that right into you know that's a a, a great uh, you know capstone or conclusion of of this conversation. You brought it right back into family business, and I would argue that I don't think we support them enough, or our generation is supported enough into what we're actually good at, rather than participating in. And I think. Um, you know, I think it, it's it's worth it's worth a second look just to understand that hey, you know what? Maybe you aren't the best in. Uh, 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 so I'm six foot five and I suck at basketball, 
And, I, and so I don't deserve even a participation trophy in basketball. And I recognize that. And so I think that, in it, I mean, I'm certainly not the poster child, but at least I understand that that is one area of, of <laughs> anyway. Um, Dave, we really appreciate you spending time with us this evening. It, uh, a very interesting conversation. And it's not something that we've ever touched on before. I think family business is a really crucial topic to talk about on our podcast. This has been a great episode. Really appreciate you. Um, at the end of every episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hopefully, uh, hopefully your listeners have gotten something from it. I yeah, think so. I, I think fun. so. Absolutely. And, and at the end of every episode, it's tradition for us to raise a glass to the men and women fighting overseas and domestically for allowing us fighting for the freedom to discuss these types of issues publicly preserving our first amendment right and so that's something that we we cheers to at the end of every episode um so thank you all for for your service uh dave thank you for coming on and and discussing these issues with us Um, i think it's a it's a great conversation that a lot of families need to be having and we're going to forward this out as as far as we can so uh, appreciate you harold yeah thanks dave this is uh this has been this has been awesome. We appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks guys. And and that's a wrap. Over and out.